This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. A landslide for Trump, a nail-biter for Clinton, a whole bunch of new voters and high turnout at the polls. A few of the big takeaways from Connecticut's primaries yesterday. Today in the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, we will break down those results, try to figure out what they tell us about Democrats and Republicans in Connecticut moving forward. As always, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us as always is Colin McEnroe. He's the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WMPR. Hello once again, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Also with us is Bill Curry. He's former Democratic nominee for governor. He is a columnist for Salon.com. Hello there, Bill. Good morning, sir. And Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean is Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Hi there, Kalila. Hi, John. Well, first of all, let's get some of the numbers out of the way. Donald Trump, with about 58 percent of the vote, really rolls over John Kasich and Ted Cruz, winning all 28 of Connecticut delegates. We think the only towns he lost, West Hartford and a handful of wealthy towns in the western part of the state. On the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton wins over Bernie Sanders, 52 to 47 percent. 51 of 55 delegates so far have been awarded. It means Hillary Clinton comes away with her on 27. Bernie Sanders with 24. Clinton swept the cities and the ring suburbs. Sanders basically won everywhere else. Colin, what do you see? Not all the numbers are exactly in, but they're mostly in right now. Yeah, they're mostly in. Um, well, first of all, I would quickly say that, as I was complaining out in the newsroom, uh, when you watch television, you know, they put these check marks next to the candidate's name. They won the state. Well, I mean, primaries are about delegates. Primaries are about how many delegates you win, not whether you won the state or not. So if you win Connecticut by five points and you win Maryland, you know, 60 to 30 or whatever that margin was, it's a big difference. You know, you, do, you did a lot better uh, in Maryland. You're going to get a lot more, a bunch, you're going to get more delegates and a larger percentage of the delegates. We probably should talk a lot more about delegates and a lot less about who actually won the state. Who won the state is kind of a psychological statement. So, I mean, having said that, um, Hillary Clinton, uh, her numbers in Connecticut last night, her map in Connecticut tonight, from last night is basically an income map. Um, she won the very rich towns and she won the very poor cities and pretty much didn't win anything else in between. So, uh, you know, and, and that, that, you know, first of all, should surprise nobody. Um, but that's exactly how she did. You, you could say a lot of what if things about that. If Bernie Sanders were better at talking to minorities, this might be a very different election, for example. But but right now, I mean, in some ways, it's a, it's a, a victory she can feel kind of good about, although she certainly didn't win by the kind of margin that she won by elsewhere. But boy, you look at her centers of support and and they are, they're very niche, you know, and and whereas Sanders did much better in a broader way. One place that Sanders did extraordinarily well was in the eastern part of the state. Uh, And since some of that is awarded proportionally, I kind of wonder if you might come out of the second district with maybe an extra delegate or two. Don't know what difference that makes at this point. Probably not too much. It's probably all, all over but the shouting. And and then on the other side, you know, it's, it's uh, obviously Trump just ran the table in every possible way. Um, he's um, a lot stronger on the western side of the state than the eastern side of the state. Like like it's almost anomalous how big that difference is. You could draw a line a little bit to the west of West Hartford. And he just does extraordinarily well there. Not obviously in the Tony places that Kasich won. You know, the, a couple of rich northwestern communities, a lot of rich uh, southwestern communities, but like everywhere else. So the 5th District in particular, where Elizabeth Esty 
if they can find a, diff- a decent challenger for her, might be in kind of an odd position. Um, it, it, that's a place to watch. He did extremely well there. Um, I, I would say, by the way, that he probably got all of the delegates. I mean, not only did he obviously get all of the delegates uh, that were available by vote, probably has the other three superdelegates, too, based on what I've heard. Uh, talking about uh, the western part of the state, the strength out there last night during our special coverage, we talked to Danbury Mayor Mark Bowden, who said about 50 percent of Republicans voted in Danbury yesterday. He said it was the largest turnout I've seen in a long time, and he elaborated on those Twitter comments for us. It was it's, – it's actually stunning. I mean, I was on the ballot in 2010 in a primary for lieutenant governor, and we had about a 20 25 percent turnout. So clearly – the Donald is a draw for people to come out and vote. <laughs> I'm laughing a little bit there. These, so is the White House. These self-effacing <laughs> co- comment by by Mark Bowden. But, yeah. well, what, what do you make of all this, Bill? I mean, really strong support for Donald Trump all across the West and really uh, mostly across the state. You know, this is uh, Connecticut, the land of steady habits and moderate Republicans. At least that was our uh, identity for a very long time. The state of Prescott Bush and Lowell Weicker and Jody Rowe and Nancy Johnson, Stuart McKinney. And then we started changing. Our last four big nominations went to Tom Foley and, and, and Linda McMahon, two very rich people who didn't do much homework and, and, may, and may have lost their elections in their debates. And so we're not surprised that Donald Trump, another rich person who doesn't do a lot of homework, comes in here and does very well within the Republican Party. Um, I think he'll be headed for a similar fate. Uh, but one of the things we saw yesterday was the sort of continued transformation What's left of the Republican Party in Connecticut is a small group of ever more extreme legislators uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and these kind of celebrity uh, millionaire uh, uh, reality, polit- you know, reality political show contestants. The second thing is I've got to disagree a little bit with uh, Colin. It's, it's not just about delegates, uh, especially on the Republican side. What Trump did here was he would call huge and for once he wouldn't be exaggerating. Winning these states by 58, 60, 61 percent uh, as he goes forward, uh, his best case scenario is still winning the pledge delegate vote, not to the very last state, California. And there are, however, as we've seen in the last few weeks, all these other de- delegates up for grabs in this incredible sn- snakes and ladders system of delegate selection. When he wins by 60 percent margins, when he has exit polls saying the Republicans are coming to accept him, his leverage with those other unpledged delegates or hazily pledged delegates goes up tremendously. So he now has a lot of other paths that opened up. The last thing I'll point out is that he got about as many del- uh, uh, votes cast for him yesterday as Hillary Clinton did and, as, uh, Bern- and more than Bernie Sanders and about as many as Clinton in a state in which the Republican Party is in every bad of shape as I just described it. I'm not saying this, but I, I predict Connecticut will go to Hillary Clinton, that she'll be the nominee and that she'll win the state in the fall. But the first sign that this is tighter than you'd think is seeing a Republican presidential candidate in a primary, in a contested primary, get as many votes as a Democratic presidential candidate. Well, I think what's also important in what we saw yesterday is what impact this will have on campaign donations and momentum. And even if it doesn't mean, you know, just because you won the state, you get all the delegates, the impact on voters' perceptions of electability, is it worthwhile to keep investing in a campaign? Even the tone that you hear from Sanders, I think, will resonate with voters to say, what's next? What happens beyond that? And the real loser last night seemed to be our understanding of American civics, hearing so many people talk about, well, I didn't know what a primary actually does, or I didn't know who could participate. 
I think it says something about the candidates in terms of educating voters beyond just vote for me and not the other person. Yeah, as far as Trump goes, there's kind of two conversations going on right now. Well, probably more than two, but one of them is the conversation between Trump and voters and, and to Bill's point, you know, how he does in, in all of these contests. The other one that's going on a little bit more quietly is between Trump and the Republican power structure. The broker of that is Paul Manafort. He's from a Connecticut family, a three-generation construction family in Connecticut, but Paul Manafort is from the second generation of that, and he's turned into a very smooth and very well-connected Republican uh, national operative. Uh, he's talking to the Republican National Committee and the donor list about Trump saying, you know, he's not as bad as you think he is. He's not as scary as you think he is. Some of this has been kind of theater. Um, and and I, I think that may be working, at least to the extent that, you know, if, if you think about Trump arriving in Cleveland with less than the 1237, slightly less than the 1237, who would stage the fight against him? Who would put up the incredible titanic struggle that would have to take place for him not to get the nomination? Well, it would have to be this kind of shadowy and maybe semi-mythical group of incredibly powerful people on the Republican National Committee and the gigantic donors. But if they don't feel like it or if last night a lot of them were just you know, putting down their glasses of, of single malt scotch and saying, you know – uh, he's kind of got it, right? You know, I mean, uh, maybe we just give up or something. You know, if that's the if there's resignation combined with a sense of, well, maybe we could work with this guy somehow, um, that makes Cleveland go down as smooth uh, as that very aged scotch. No, I've heard an awful lot of analysis last night and this morning, Kalila, from pundits who are revising their predictions that Trump has a cap on his support. You know, a lot of people were saying early on in the process, tops. 35 percent. There's not more people than that would ever vote for a Donald Trump for president. And then last night and this morning, we're hearing an awful lot of people say, well, look, 60 percent of the vote all of a sudden in several states, different sorts of states. Maybe this says something. I guess I'm just not so sure about that. This is a very different contest right now with different people he's running against than was earlier in the year. Yes, indeed. Paul Manafort and others have tried to soften the image, and he's done some work, at least, to try to moderate some of his speech. But do you really think that the number has gone up substantially from, say, that 35 percent number we were talking about so many months ago of people who are really ready to say Donald Trump for president in November? Well, I think the issue is not necessarily people willing to say Donald Trump for president, but the number who are willing to say not Hillary Clinton or not anyone else, not Ted Cruz, not John Kasich. This latest ploy to say we're going to work together to take out Trump has backfired tremendously. And I think that when you look at changing dynamics within the state across the country, people are giving Trump a second look or a different look. It's why the Republican establishment is so concerned right now. It was cute and funny back in January when Trump was making these horrible statements. Now that he actually has a shot at winning, they're saying, wait a minute, how do we rein this in? And so I think voters are reconsidering, will it have an impact in a general? We don't yet know. There's a long path between now and November. I I, I will say we have a a four-year-old fan of the wheelhouse in the other room watching today. He's he's, uh, observing our program. I think he understood, Kalila, that the deal that 
Cruz in case of cut was stupid as soon as we heard about it. I mean, that's just that to me in the way. And in fact, here's the thing, Bill, what what that shows is, I mean, Donald Trump may not do a lot of homework, as you said, but he certainly seems to understand the politics of how this works a hell of a lot better than Ted Cruz and John Kasich and people uh, who are trying to uh, stage a stop Donald Trump movement. Things like this just look ridiculous, and they're cutting against every single thing we're hearing on exit polls and every single thing people are saying. They don't want a rigged system. They don't want people conspiring against their right to put down a vote and say who their candidate is. Yeah, I, I, when the story first broke about Kasich and Cruz, I thought the least you could do here is act like one of those oligopolies where they fix the prices without having the meeting. You know, where they just watch each other closely and make these changes. They could have done for each other everything they wanted to do in a much more subtle way without (laughs) announcing that, yes, you're all talking about rigging the system. So what we'd like to do is try to rig the system. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Donald, just take that as our gift to you. And and, and that helps him again. He, He has so many people, Democrats and Republicans alike, have handed him issues that resonate in this election year more than any of my life, issues like trade and corruption and uh, foreign interventionism. And I mean, the, the, his ability, in fact, to, to snare what I regard as progressive issues, but in the case of corruption, a universal issue, the one great universe, universal issue. And uh, he's no reformer. The only reform he proposes is to elect him. This is not in any sense a reformer, but we keep handing him the issue anyway. Let me just throw out a few quick numbers here. Just uh, I'm trying to was trying to get some uh, turnout numbers here. So we now know that more than 200,000 Republicans uh, turned out to vote. That's about out of 430,000 registered. So that's you know it's not probably 50 percent, but it's high 40s uh, here in Connecticut. More than uh, 322,000 Democrats voted out of 757,000. So that's like low 40s maybe. I mean this is all I'm guessing here. To Kalila's point about sort of um, no thank you votes, first of all, uh, I'm excited and pleased to report that Rocky De La Fuente got 800 votes and maybe more. And Ben Carson got four votes in New Haven. And then um, you remember we were talking yesterday about the uncommitted line. There's, so yes. there's on your ballot, mm-hmm. there's this uncommitted line. What that means is, yeah, here, here's my vote, but I don't really like any, I don't care. You know, I don't care what you do. Basically, <laughs> pick any delegate you want. I don't care. Here, go ahead, take my and, vote. And yet, uh, I showed up. And then I, I showed up. <laughs> so, just to say that, four thousand two hundred twenty-six <laughs> Democrats uh, of this, uh, as of this moment, uh, check yeah. that uncommitted box. In two thousand three hundred uh, Republicans, as of this minute, these are not quite complete vote totals. But yeah, none of the above actually did you know reasonably well. Just what I, what I was saying last yeah. night is, and maybe we can go to talk about it a little bit. More about this later. Here in Connecticut and in lots of other places, when the primary is over, after the primaries are over, everybody's an unaffiliated voter. I mean, in this election, everybody's an unaffiliated voter. Now, that's not exactly true in the sense that there are going to be hardcore Clinton people. There are going to be hardcore Trump people. They're not going to move. There's going to be Sanders people uh, who... But see, when you talk about those Sanders people, I mean, basically, a lot of people's votes are up for grabs because there are Sanders people who cannot vote for Clinton. You know, there are there are Republicans who cannot vote for Trump, Um, you know, and there's like five or six other scenarios kind of like that. So you actually have this huge sprawling electorate that's going to struggle to make up its mind. And in that sense, everybody's an unaffiliated voter. But do you really think Sanders supporters will say, I can't vote for Hillary Clinton, so I'm going to vote for Donald Trump? Or will they just sit out? They'll do one it of those two. On, it, it, it depends on what you – and even in this conversation, we overlap a little bit, whether we're talking about primary voters or general election voters. 
I think a great mistake of the, of the Democratic Party has been to perceive the Sanders uh, insurgency as a left insurgency, mm-hmm. as a progressive insurgency. Of the Sanders hardcore Democratic activists, progressive left, some will vote green, a few will stay home, and the vast majority will help Hillary Clinton. But in that larger group of unaffiliated voters, of white working class voters, of the disaffected middle class turned off by corruption, this is a much harder sell. And by the way, it's not a sell that Bernie Sanders can make. He's going to endorse or he's going to go around. This is, the, this is a case this – is, this, is this is a deal that she has to close. And, uh, and that's going to be a great, great challenge for her. So that when, – when you talk about those – everybody's an unaffiliated voter, that great disaffected middle, uh, whether they're going to just ease over to the Clinton camp – that's a much bigger question right now than I ever thought it would be. I think it's a huge question. Yesterday, I talked to Republican voters who, whose favorite candidate was Bernie Sanders. They were they were voting in the I meet Republican them all the primary. Time. Yeah, and their but their favorite candidate isn't Trump or any, it's it's Bernie Sanders. So really, we have these kind of beasts in this campaign. We have these unicorns who just don't typically exist. And I think you're going to see a lot of those. And I think Bill's right, too. There's the huge disaffected middle. You know, it's Trump, Sanders, it's Sanders, Trump, or they haven't made up their mind, but it's one of those two. And and obviously, if Sanders isn't in the race, that really does tend to favor Trump. Well, when we come back from a break, we're going to talk a little bit more about the process of voting in Connecticut and other places yesterday. A lot of people did show up thinking they could vote for Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders and were turned away because they hadn't registered properly. And not terribly surprisingly, the open primary yesterday in Rhode Island, that's the one Bernie Sanders won. We'll be talking more about the election piece of this with Bill Curry, with Kalila Brown-Dean, and with Colin McEnroe. That's Coming up in the wheelhouse where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankoski. Today is the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're breaking down all the results from yesterday's Connecticut primary with Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WMPR. Hey, Colin, what's on your show today? I really need a break from not only politics, but from human beings. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to be talking about extraterrestrials today. Uh, imagine that uh, the biggest news tomorrow was not a primary, but first contact. Uh, what would happen? What would change? What would change from everything from our science fiction to our theology to our understanding of science and the universe. One of our guests is Paul Davies, who I think is like sort of Jodie Foster in contact. He's like, you know, he's like the first person they call if there's first contact. And he might be the person who calls the president to say there's first contact. So it'll be interesting. I hope. And he, and he also need, has, he has Groot, uh, don't you, from, right, from yeah, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah. We'll actually be phoning in from uh, a remote location. From a remote location. Yeah. This well, is, that'll be good because the Bradley Cooper raccoon is living on my back porch yeah, right yeah. now. So. <laughs> this is uh, this afternoon's Colin McEnroe Show at 1 o'clock, Extraterrestrials. We're also joined by Bill Curry. He's, of course, a columnist for Salon.com. <laughs> Quinnipiac University's Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science there. Now, yesterday, Joshua, an unaffiliated voter from Naugatuck, called our show. He was one of a number of people we heard about who showed up yesterday thinking they could vote. So I'm a Trump supporter, and I showed up at my polling location, and I was informed... Apparently, I'm a undecided voter, and I had a deadline, which was noon yesterday, to apparently pick a party in order to vote in today's primary. And so Secretary of State Denise Merrill discussed some of these issues. A lot of people showing up like Joshua, thinking that they could vote yesterday. Here's what she told us last night. My office, we're still getting calls from people who are furious, even though I feel like I've lost my voice talking about how, yes, you have to be a Republican or a Democrat. Yes, you have to be registered with a party. I've said it on this program, I mean, and everywhere else. And you have, too. And the media has been repeating it. And everybody talked about it after New York. And still... 
hundreds of people showed up. Okay, here's a better here, and and, and, and kudos to the secretary for doing all that uh, public education. But here here's another solution: open up the primaries to unaffiliated voters. And this system of closing them off hasn't served either party uh, in in any positive way. Both parties are shrinking. Both parties are competing to win those unaffiliated for uh, November. Uh, the new voters that are attracted to presidential campaigns are one of the biggest ways they build membership. Everything is for it. The only thing cutting against it is that insiders don't like to share power. And, uh, and, and they have some sense that their ever smaller party needs to have its undiluted judgment, you know, and not, not tainted by all these unaffiliated uh, pouring in. It's the worst possible uh, uh, strategy to be to be uh, uh, pursuing. I, I knew there was a reason I liked you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> K- Kalila, how about you? I mean, what, what do you see out of this? Ten years? <laughs> well, I, I think my ongoing frustration is of hearing people claim that this is an example of disenfranchisement and voter suppression. It is not. I stood I on a bridge that. in Selma, Alabama last year for the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. What people there were going through, that was disenfranchisement and suppression. This is about the rules of the game. And we can object to those rules. We cannot like them. We can work to change them. And perhaps we should. But waiting now and saying that this is candidate-driven instead of party-driven, I think really underestimates the scope of this issue about protecting voting rights, about protecting access. This will be the first national presidential election in 50 years where we don't have the Voting Rights Act of 1965 fully protecting access. So I'm more concerned with the people who were registered with a party but were then turned away as opposed to those who simply didn't read the rules in advance and showed up yesterday thinking they could just vote. Yeah, I'm probably – well, first of all, I'm a little bit agnostic about the about the actual question, the values question um, and, and any uh, leaning I might have had towards Kalila's direction has been affected by working with Mr. Gankowski who I just don't even dare say those things around. So, <laughs> no, no. Um, so but I will say I maybe, maybe my one major reaction – listening to that show yesterday – uh, I was mainly, of course, tweeting goat pictures to your uh, show account. But when I wasn't <laughs> tweeting, and when Joshua started talking, I actually reached out in the air and dope slapped him. Um, because, first of all, dude, you're not undecided. You just said you're voting for, you want to vote for Trump. But it's like, I, I'm undecided. No, you're unaffiliated. That's what that's called. That's called unaffiliated. All right. Now read the rules. You, we can all talk about whether the rules are fair or not, good or not, bad or not. I'm very open to Bill's argument, to your argument. But the reality is you play baseball right now. There are three strikes, not four strikes. There are four, four balls, not two balls. You know, just know the rules. Yeah, but you, if, if you never if you if you came down from from another planet, like you're going to be talking about this afternoon at one o'clock right. on the Colin McEnroe show and, and you just saw the system, you would probably not figure out baseball all that quickly either. And yes, I understand people do have to read. But here's what we had over the course of the last couple of years in Connecticut. We had uh, our Secretary of State working very hard on legislation that would change uh, same-day voter registration so that you could show up at the polls during a November election and actually register that day. That's something a lot of states have done, and that's something that makes an awful lot of sense for a lot of people and opens it up to more, more folks. 
I think people could be excused to think that that was the rule all across the board. Mm-hmm. Why is this election at the same polling place I have to go to any different than any other election? Yeah, because it's not an election. It's a primary. But I, I take yeah, your I, point. I, the, everything's too complicated. I understand that. But I, I, I am I, so somewhat impervious to people whining about it. All right. You didn't <laughs> you didn't figure it out. You know, it's a little bit complicated. It's not that complicated. I'm not that smart. I get it. You have to be registered with a party to vote in a primary. How complicated is that? Well, I think the other problem is people don't realize this is about federalism and states setting the rules. So what your friends have as a rule in New York is not what we have in Connecticut. So I think that's where some basic civic education has to take place. But the question is also where does the responsibility lie? Give Connecticut credit. We actually have some of the most progressive registration rules compared to other states, whether that's online registration, this you know recent effort to try to have automatic opt-out registration. That is something that you're not seeing at other states. Other states are taking that access away. Let's figure out what we can do to change without pointing fingers. Yeah, let me just say, if, if, um, number one, uh, uh, I didn't mean to equate this. Uh, to the issues of voter suppression that no, are you have not, but that are that are a cancer that. on sure. our democracy. And number two, uh, at the same time, uh, I actually understand the frustration of people who don't know all the party rules, and um, and so many of the party rules are made to keep people out. And the three arguments I just made were and all said that it was in fact in the party's interest to do this. It was better for the parties as well as for the democracy as a whole. And and in an election in which. I'll bet no one in this room – I didn't know. I've spent my life in politics and I didn't know that over 40 of the Republican states didn't let the candidates choose their own delegates. You know, one of the things, if Donald Trump weren't in such a great position right now, he'd have to go to that convention knowing that of the delegates he won, two-thirds of them are against him, would actually prefer not to vote for him and are only bound by a rule at a convention. Most people who walked in the polls thought they were picking a nominee and didn't realize that a third of the people it takes to nominate on the Democratic side are unelected, unaccountable Democratic National Committee members who have been rigging the system from the beginning. And all, the, all this exclusion, uh, lastly, on the Democratic side, there is this thing that where the party's not helped, but the party insiders are. And it has always been a problem opening up this party, uh, as someone who's wanted that all my life, opening it up to more and more people. Because the party itself is a drag weight on it. They should trust that the unaffiliated voters who want to participate in their process, they're going to win a lot of them over on a permanent basis. They're going to win them in November. They're going to replenish their own ranks. And the simpler these rules are, the better the democracy I, is. I, I, I just want to quickly go to Darlene and Litchfield. Darlene, go ahead. Yes, my only concern with having a completely open primary would be that um, I heard some things from other states where people were actually making it more dishonest. Um, instead of voting for, you've always been a Republican and you're conservative, or you've always been a Democrat and you're liberal, you switch teams to strategic vote. The people that wanted not Kasich to win, but wanted to jump in and vote for Kasich just to undermine Trump and so forth. It seems like it's, um, you're, you're really, if you're not voting in just your own primary for your own party, that you're opening up, uh, a whole can of worms. Well, Darlene, thank you very much for that. And Colin, though, I, I will say that of the 90,000 or whatever people who registered to vote this time, a pretty substantial uh, number, I, I would say, there are a few people in there, and I know some of them, who registered specifically to cast that exact kind mm-hmm. of strategic or we'll call a tactical vote against a candidate. And, you know, that's going to happen anyway, but at least they're getting involved in the process. Yeah, I think, you know, so you, you can do that. And, and 
You know, there are other people want to do that for much more noble reasons. I mean, I don't know. I mean, for example, I'll use myself as an example. I, I investigated switching from Democrat to Republican in the last election cycle because I was actually sort of more interested in John McKinney than I was in anybody else. Not because I wanted to screw up the Republican field, but I actually thought he might be a pretty good candidate. Maybe I'd like to vote for John McKinney. So, But there's a cooling-off period, the 90-day cooling-off period. I can't do that because Connecticut is set up to re- prevent you from doing this. The one thing that I would say as we talk about this and – um, uh, and I would I would cede expertise to the to professor among us, but it's kind of important not to conflate things that are statute versus things that are party rules. Some of the things that Bill's talking about are party rules. It's going to be very hard to keep parties from making up any kind of rules they want. They're parties, you know. Uh, whereas some of the things about how our primary is done here in Connecticut, in terms of when you can vote, when you have to register, all this kind of stuff, um, that's done at the level of statute. So those are kind of two different things. They may amount to the same conversation, but they don't work the same way. Sure. And I think in practice, when we look at now, what do we do with where we are? When you have 40 percent of your state saying that they are unaffiliated, how do we change that? Is that something that people will have to go to the state legislature to do? Is that something that they could convince their parties to make those changes? And so even if they are two separate processes, the perception amongst voters is very much the same. So if people complained yesterday about not being able to vote, are they going to push for that reform today? I'm not convinced. And, and no matter how hard they push for it, Bill, I mean, one point I, I made on one of the various programs that I was talking on uh, yesterday is when you have a state like Connecticut, which has a Democratic governor, a Democratic legislature, uh, Democrats in all the statewide offices, Democrats essentially controlling the state from top to bottom, why on earth would Democrats want to change anything about the system at all? No matter how much pressure 800,000 unaffiliated voters might have on the way the system works, that's just never going to happen. Well, let me just say, never's a a strong word, and every so often enough public outrage permeates the system. I just made a set of arguments why it's in the party's interest, in the longer party's interest, although I didn't make an argument. I I did not make an argument why those people would see it was in their personal interest, and that's really more the conflict. The party has an interest in in enlarging itself and, and in growing and in attracting more people to the political process. I think this is the best way to do it. Whether this party, the Democratic Party, was for campaign finance reform, but it took Republican Jody Rell to shove it down the Democrats' throats in the end. And reform doesn't have a good track record of late in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party in this state. So I think you're right. Uh, But I also think that the public disgust over this entire system could uh, bring – uh, for one thing, any, any, any politicians who pursue these kinds of reforms in the next go-around are going to get something politicians like, which is attention. And the issue is going to get something which it needs, which is a little more scrutiny. So I don't want to I, – I, I suspect you're right, but I don't want to start by counting it out. Uh, one of the things I know, Kalila, you wanted to talk about is is just how much money we're talking about being spent during this entire system. Obviously, money in politics is something that both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton have been talking an awful lot about on the stump. It doesn't feel to me like there's a big conversation about money in politics, though, happening amongst people. There's an awful lot of other conversations happening about money, and it's about the, the money that is or is not in my pocketbook. So how much does money in politics play into this primary season and then also into the general election race this, this year? So I, I think if we look at the economic climate within our state right now, so I was struck that yesterday as we were compiling this election data and looking at numbers, It comes in the ticker that there were new layoffs in the state yesterday on Election Day. 
And then I'm looking at campaign commercials and thinking how much money was spent into that. So, of course, there are different pools of money and how people allocate that is different. But I think that voters are starting to say, with all of this emphasis on the election, all of the money, dark money rolling into these elections, what is the real priority here? And looking at campaign donations from individuals, from organizations, what will that mean for how people see their future? Part of what they like about Donald Trump is that he can't be bought. He seems to be above this political fray. What does it mean for people who are still saying, I'm a working class person. Will my vote matter if I can't accompany it with a big check? And Bernie Sanders is below the political mm-hmm. fray. You know, he, Donald Trump can't be bought. Bernie Sanders, $27 of average contribution. And this is what we keep hearing. Bill? And and the Sanders campaign really has been a lesson that the power of ideas is greater than the power of money, despite everything we uh, – that, that the power of money is to some degree its own illusion. You'd have a hard time proving that all these ads actually made the difference in any of these states. There's a real empirical question here. Uh, 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 but, you know, I, I, I just think in, in – in the end, I, I, however, the, the, the most important point I think that I want to disagree with you on is how much people care. Two very respected pollsters, Scott Rasmussen, Republican, Stanley Greenberg, a Democrat, ha, are among the only pollsters who've, who've done any work on this. And they found, Rasmussen found in national exit polls, that even in the teeth of a recession, people put political corruption above the economy and jobs as the single thing they care about most. The reason that Bernie Sanders got this far above all, in my view, is that he made a point that the public already agrees on that the corruption of the democracy is the principal reason for the decline of the middle class. I think the, the middle class has gotten that and that the elites still have not. And I think it's driven this extraordinary election more than any other factor. Yeah, I mean, actually, obviously, the Trump um, recrudescence is an argument that the power of no ideas is also apparently really good, too. Um, so, I mean, it, and he's such an unlikely vehicle for this whole thing, right? I mean, this is a guy who, who by his own admission, played this game in the most cynical way possible for most of his life, contributing to anybody he thought would do him any good or anybody he thought would show up at his wedding if he wanted them to. By the way, happy birthday, Melania. That was yesterday. Uh, but uh, so, oh, so, I mean, it, it just, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I mean, it's sort of a weird thing. And so we talk about how the Sanders and Trump constituencies overlap. But that's a weird way for them to overlap. I think they are both rejections of Citizens United and big money and and the idea that politicians can be bought. I think Trump is such a bizarre choice for that, though, because he's so symbolic of cynicism on the other side of that. It's cynicism, but it's it's actually showing people this is how it works. I've spent my life in business, and this is how it works. I give money to these people and showing it to people in a way that maybe they didn't understand before. Again, I find it – everything he says about this is false. Uh, and, and his basic premise is that Hillary's evil for selling influence, but he's a hero for buying it, okay, the other side of the transaction. We know that's not true. His only reform is to elect him. We know that's not a real reform. Uh, at the same time, the number of people who do finally buy the idea, I'll vote for the rich guy because he's the one guy who can't be bought, and all these other people are bought night and day, uh, 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 and and it's become well, what Anthony Kennedy called soft corruption is really the institutionalization of corruption. Big money runs everything. And in fact, everybody does know it. I, I just want to get to Peter in Stanford. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I just want to say uh, I am uh, going back to a previous uh, topic. I'm one of those um, Bernie Sanders supporters who's going to have a – and I'm a registered Democrat. I've been a registered Democrat for most of my adult life. And I'm going to have a diff- tough time with uh, between – um, between basically my three candidates, uh, uh, Jill Stein, uh, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump, because the two frontrunners, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, have so much negatives 
that I might just go with the Green Party. And I'm a registered Democrat. I've been registered Democrat for 20 years. I work the polls. Uh, and uh, But uh, I, I don't know if I could vote for uh, either one of the two uh, Republican or Democratic uh, nominees. Well, Peter, thank you very much for your phone call. Kalila, how many people uh, like Peter do you think are out there, people who, who right now, and again, we're in the heat of the moment, and we're you know we we have Bernie Sanders losing a narrow race in Connecticut last night. A couple months down the road, how many people are are actually like Peter saying, "Boy, I just really don't know. I don't know if I can support Hillary Clinton." I, I think what we'll see more of are people supporting a third party candidate than making the jump from you know considering a Jill Stein or Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump, and that's simply because I think when people are thinking about a pragmatic approach to politics, how you define that varies based on you your individual values, what your preferences are. But as the rhetoric continues, and it's going to get even more negative, if we could believe that, it's going to get nastier, it's going to be more negative, I think that may actually isolate some people. But how, and you've studied this for your entire career, I mean, how realistic is pragmatic politics at the at the voter level? I mean, are people really going in there saying, well, I could do this or I could do that, and here's what I think it's going to mean long term? I mean, People vote for a lot of reasons, Kalila, and I don't know that they're sitting there thinking the way that we think they're thinking about all these pragmatic ideas. And that's why I think pragmatism is is a very different definition from how we talk about it compared to how voters are thinking about it. I know that many people of color said, I really like Bernie Sanders' ideas. I like the idea that he is going to transform higher education. But their pragmatic consideration is, can he actually get that done? Voters are concerned about wasting their votes. Should I support a third-party candidate if they can't win in the general election because of the the rules of the game give us this two-party system? So that's what I mean about being pragmatic, not some mathematical calculation, but thinking simply, can this person get it done? I think the answer to these questions are, is different depending on how where you are on the on the political spectrum. So getting a kind of conservative Democrat to vote for Trump is going to be easy peasy. Getting a kind of getting getting an unaffiliated voter who usually votes Democrat, but is a little on the tracks a little on the conservative side, getting that person to vote for Trump could be very easy peasy. Obviously, the people who are kind of hardcore Bernie people, that may be a little bit more complicated. Uh, the more progressive or liberal they track, the more likely they might look be to look over at, at somebody like Joel Stein or, or not vote at all or, or whatever. But I mean, we are talking about different kinds of uh, beasts here. Hey, this is sort of not germane exactly, but somebody asked about this earlier. Um, so somebody asked about vote totals, right? Yes, Trump yes. Okay, so I, I'm looking at, I think, the last set of AP figures. Trump, uh, 122,519. Uh, Clinton, just by comparison, um, 169,763. Sanders, 152,895. So not only did Hillary Clinton get a lot more votes than Donald Trump, but Bernie Sanders got a lot more votes than Donald Trump. That's just the way Connecticut is. I mean, there aren't that many Republicans. And it's literally just the way Connecticut is. A yeah. lot more Democrats than Republicans registered in the state. Colin McEnroe hosts The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, Kalila Brown-Dean is an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. And Bill Curry writes a political column for Salon.com. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the impact this has on state Democrats, including the head state Democrat, Governor Dan Malloy. It's coming up next, Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be listening back to a recent conversation we had with author and political scientist Jacob Hacker. He's taken us through the rise and fall of America's mixed economy. It led to a lot of our prosperity at the tail end of the 20th century, but it's been rejected by a lot of economists and politicians in the 21st. We'll find out why coming up on tomorrow's Where We Live. Today is The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Bill Curry, former Democratic nominee for governor and advisor to President Bill Clinton, also a columnist for Salon.com, and Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. Um, one of the, the interesting things about what's happened in the last just really week of this campaign leading up to the primary, Kalila, is that Bernie Sanders started talking about Dan Malloy on the, on the campaign trail. Now, Dan Malloy, of course, the governor of Connecticut, head of the Democratic Governors Association, essentially the personification of support for Hillary Clinton in our state. Um, we talk an awful lot about the state budget. What Bernie Sanders was talking about was cuts to mental health. I, I guess I'm wondering how you think all of what happened yesterday plays out for our governor and the rest of the Democratic establishment here in our state. Well, I definitely think there are some concerns about there being down ticket consequences of not only the budget, but how people align themselves nationally and for whom they are willing to be a surrogate. I think it will definitely become an issue this summer as we move toward conventions and what that platform will look like, who is participating in the platform, and how the issues that may or may not play out play out as well for Sanders yesterday, how might that be incorporated into this platform? Look, Sanders may not have won Connecticut in terms of the percentage, but he has definitely shaped the debates that are happening and moved Clinton really to the left on a lot of issues that before she wasn't even addressing because she didn't have to. That, I think, will affect how people perceive Malloy as a national political figure. Is that someone that we want to see in a cabinet-level position? And can he govern the state, given those ongoing concerns? Um, let me just say, I want to disagree just in, in, in two ways with something Claudia just said. It's <laughs> a look of shock at her face. But one She's is, very disappointed in you. One is, it isn't to the left, it's to the center, according to all the polling data. And secondly, he didn't really move her. She has used so far just taken a couple of very deft syntactical adjustments on trade, on the Exxon pipeline, and a whole set of issues. And now we're going to have to find out – one of the things she's going to have to do is do a real gut check because she has to actually move further on these issues. And that would begin by her understanding that it's not just the left. The the, the public feels strongly about these things and that the Democratic Party has given away – Really, some of the building blocks of the Roosevelt coalition, the old economic coalition, some of the basic building blocks from Social Security right across the board, we've given them away many times now. And now we have to try to get them back and quickly. And uh, and so as as for Malloy, you know, I just think – one, I think Clinton aptly saw that this was one state where he wouldn't be a good surrogate. Uh, but that doesn't mean that his national prospects, she's going to make him the head. She's, they've already made him the head of the platform committee. Not a good sign. Malloy is a corporate Democrat, whether it's education, economic development, the pay-to-play politics stuff. He's very much in the Clinton mold, and he's not much more disposed than Clinton toward a kind of dialogue with what people regard as the Bernie wing, what I regard as the broader middle class on most of those issues. They have not just adopting a platform with a few phrases, but there has to be a real discussion about whether or not this party has any interest in being more of the champion of the disadvantaged and the dispossessed. There's no question that the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats is huge and the difference between Hillary and and Trump is huge. But people are going to be looking hard at the level of commitment of this party to reform. And if they don't see it, that also just creates an opening for Trump of a 
of a magnitude that I never would have foreseen. But I think it's about how we define reform and in what areas. So that I think Sanders does deserve credit for pushing Clinton on the yes. issue of criminal justice reform, of acknowledging those missteps and how those missteps in the 1990s or those endorsements have set decades of change. So that's why I mean about pushing and about the reform that has to happen. It has to be more than just an economic reform, which is key and important, but how it connects to so many other issues and how people live their lives every day. But part of how she handled it was by doing this sort of be true to your school campaign that accusing him basically of not being loyal to Barack, not being loyal to Bill, not being a loyal Democrat. And he did need to do a better job of pushing back and saying our party needs to be loyal to its principles. Party loyalty shouldn't replace loyalty to principle ever. And, uh, and, and, and the question is how much of that her people really believed and how, much, and, and, and how much of the larger picture they saw. This isn't just about what Bernie does. This is, about, this is a big, big gut check for the people who, who, who are about to win this thing. One way you'll find out about how some of this loyalty plays out is uh, how, how the convention goes, right? So um, Clinton – we've got a lot of problems with people spilling stuff here lately. <laughs> but uh, Clint, so Clinton uh, – excuse me. Sanders is saying that he's in it to the last vote, right? That he's right down to the uh, to the final vote of the last primary. But then what does he do after that? I mean does he pull a Ted Kennedy and show up at the convention and just kind of be there and – conduct a, a mild insurgency. And I mean, that seemed like a t- tactical mistake for Kennedy. Or does he do the other thing that Ted Kennedy d- did? And that's become one of the most respected senators in, in the U.S. Senate. Um, oddly enough, you know, before his candidacy, Ted Kennedy was taken less seriously. He spent the rest of his career in the Senate rising to a certain level of ideological prestige. And, and Sanders could do that. Obviously, his time in the Senate is going to be shorter than Ted Kennedy's was after 1980. Um, so, you know, it, it might be in his interest to go to the the convention and take kind of a high road, you know, get as many of his ideas incorporated into the platform as he possibly can, although having lifted, lifted his leg on the co-chair of the platform committee, as Bill pointed out, <laughs> yeah, maybe not the greatest tactical idea in the world. So that's sort of number one in terms of loyalty. The other thing I would say is that it was interesting how much of an issue people tried to make of Dan Malloy uh, in Connecticut uh, in this. I mean, not only Bernie Sanders, but Themis Claritus, who, by the way, became, I think, the first you know, significant office holder on the Republican side to actually declare for Trump yesterday. That happened in the the fog of war yesterday. But uh, appearing on his stage uh, over the weekend, but saying she had not committed to him, she told the crowd, uh, take all of your deep hatred of Dan Malloy and put it here, I guess, in the presidential race what a lovely moment, for huh? the next yeah. six months. This is uh, a woman who's – who's, <laughs> she and Len Fasano had try, tried to chart a more amicable kind of bipartisan course with the Malloy office uh, and maybe even be better friends with Malloy than Sharkey and Looney have been recently. So – Deep hatred? Really? Dude, you wanted to say that? (laughs) Let's quickly go to Tim in Bloomfield. Tim, what do you think? Well, uh, good morning. And uh, just a quick shout out to Colin specifically. Um, Having seen you speak a lot of times at both Walkington and the Forum, uh, it's great to actually be able to talk to you for once. Um, But really, it seems that a lot of the discussion is a little premature when it comes to what Sanders supporters, you know, myself included, are going to do after the primary. And it seems that there's not a lot of discussion about a third-party run. It seems that with the support being as high as it is among independents for Sanders, there's not much stopping us from funding and running our own election. I'm kind of curious what you guys have to say about that as an option. Tim, thank you. Look, this is the deal uh, right now, and, and this is a real argument among progressives for sure. I will make the case uh, uh, that the road for Bernie is, is – is, is the wrong road is actually just saying whatever Hillary does is great and I'm for her all the way. 
also the wrong road is 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 not being firmly in her camp the the what progressives need to do is to look at the nature of our system and begin and, and take the lesson of the Tea Party, the Republicans. They chased 20, 40, 60 Republicans out of office. They took over that party. What progressives would give to have half as much influence on the Democratic Party. What Bernie's about to do right now, I believe, is try to make good on the promise of building a movement. And it's, and it's a somewhat contradictory road for the next few months. On the one hand, to be for her as he will be. And on the other hand, to be starting to build again an independent progressive movement that isn't just hasn't just been colonized by the Democratic Party, but puts pressure on the party. Both the party and the movements were better off when they did it that way. We, we, and Bernie will be trying to lead us back to that. And that's where I think if, if, if the smart thing in American politics right now is for him to help build a movement that puts pressure on that party. It doesn't just ask them to reform, but puts the real pressure on, brings primaries, fights issues, has an independent view. But, but, but if, the, if the pressure, Kalila, looks at all like what happened with the Tea Party, I mean, a couple of years in, the Tea Party has in many ways thrown the Republican Party into complete chaos. We don't even know what different parts of the Republican Party stand for. Is that what progressives want to do with the Democratic Party? I think that is the worst thing for progressives and the Democratic Party in terms of that internal pressure that leads to an implosion. I definitely agree with Bill that this cannot be a moment. This cannot just be about Bernie Sanders. It has to be about building a sustainable movement that works inside the electoral process but keeps pressure at the grassroots level. Revolutions don't happen within the confines of an electoral process. And so that is where I think the focus has to be not just presidential but local, state, and congressional as well. Yeah, so in 2000, uh, Ralph Nader, who we all love, said there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the two parties, uh, hence his candidacy. And what he meant was some of the things that we've talked about, right, that as far as he was concerned, both parties were beholden to moneyed interest and to institutionalized power. Um, that's not the same thing as President Gore would be really exactly the same as President Bush. There are so many ways in which that plays out that don't, that don't connect to some of the issues that we're talking about right now. And I would say that if you make the argument there isn't a dime's worth of difference between President Clinton uh, and President Trump, you're going to get some pushback. Uh, I think they would be very, very different presidents. But that's just me. And we'll end with a tweet from Neil who says, I worked for Bernie in 06. I voted for him in 16, but we'll vote Dem when time comes. We've got a two-party system. It's not the perfect system. You can keep the tweets coming at where we live. I want to thank our panelists in the wheelhouse today. Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thank you, Colin. Bye-bye. Bill Curry, former Democratic nominee for governor and a columnist for Salon.com. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, sir. And thank you to Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Thank you so much, Kalila. Thank you, John. Our program produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer, Kion Wolf. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. I'd like to send out love and turtles to executive producer Katie Talarski. Our intern is Tiana Duquette. Continue this conversation at wnpr.org slash where we live.